Thanks for joining us at Colts to Consciousness. This storytelling podcast is meant to be for entertainment purposes only and does not substitute for any medical advice. We may discuss triggering topics and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. Lastly, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the host. If some crazy nation state were to lower the age of consent to to six, Scientologists would move there and wouldn't be considered unethical in Scientology. It's like whatever the laws of the land say is fine. There is no inherent idea in Scientology about consent. Hey guys, my name is Shalise Ansola, and this is Cults to Consciousness, where we discuss leaving high-demand religions and organizations and finding healing and independence through awareness and true individual sovereignty. If you're listening only and you want to see our faces, go to my YouTube channel at Cults to Consciousness, where you can like, subscribe, leave your comments, your suggestions. It would mean the world if you could, you know, interact with us a little bit. I do my best to respond to the comments when I can. Today's guest, this is one that flooded my comment section, actually, you guys, on my video with Danny. She talked about her life as a child in Scientology. And unbeknownst to us, we were both saying, yeah, this is a topic that most people don't really cover. And in the comments, it was like, um, have you heard of growing up in Scientology? <laughs> and everyone was just like saying I had to talk to Aaron Smith-Levin. So, of course, I reached out and he so graciously accepted the request. So I can't wait to speak with him. Thank you so much for joining us, Aaron Smith Levin. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Your channel is awesome. You've got over 150,000 subscribers. You have tons of stories of people who have grown up in Scientology. And I thought everyone loved Danny's episode so much, uh, the vulnerability and also just getting that perspective of a child who grew up in a cult. And since both of us pretty much grew up in cults, I thought it would be nice to dive into that subject even further, get into the nitty gritty of just what it does to a child and the psychology from our own perspective and from the perspective of the people you've also interviewed. And then towards the end, I want to get into what it's like for you now, being someone who is so vocal and speaking out about Scientology, what that does when you have those smear campaigns and just how you are overall. Does that sound good? Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> All right. So where do you want to start with this? Well, um, the, the interview that you did with Danny was really, really awesome. And uh, w one of the things that made me want to do a follow-up conversation with you on your channel is I saw a conversation that you had with another channel. I'm going to forget the name of it, but he's a former Jehovah's Witness. What's the name of his channel? Outworldly. Jake. Alt-worldly at Jake. And you, guys, and you guys were having a conversation about, well, it was sort of comparing the perspectives of you grew up in Mormonism, he grew up in Jehovah's Witness. And it was this, the thing about these cults, these high control groups, and I know there's a lot of disagreement on oh, which groups are cults, you know, which ones are real yeah. religions and, and, and whatever. It's amazing how many things these different groups and cults have in common. And yeah. to see your conversation with him, I mean, being completely different organizations, and yet so much of the experience was similar. Now, your guys' conversation was particularly interesting because both the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses identify as Christian faiths, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, 
And both of you, neither one of you seem to totally know beforehand that the other one considered themselves Christian. Am I I misremembering that? It was something like that. No. Yeah, it was it was similar. So I think we were both discovering that each other didn't believe in the Trinity, but they also wanted to be Christian at the same time. So it was like, wait, you guys don't believe in the Trinity? So that was kind of a fun little discoverance. That's right. That's right. And so it was it was the amazing interplay between the two of you about the similarities of your experiences in these groups, even though they're different groups, combined with learning brand new things about the other group for the first time and how each one of these groups looks down on the other groups. Like each one of these groups thinks your group makes perfect sense and is totally, you know, internally, logically con- consistent or whatever. And, and you look down on all the other groups. And that is so true for Scientology as well. And I was watching your guys' conversation thinking you could just inter- in, you, you could just replace any uh, either the JWs or the Mormons with Scientology in this conversation. And it would be almost <laughs> almost exactly the same and just as as fun. Because there is something fun about having these conversations, even though the experience of growing up in these cults is not a fun experience. Um, mm-hmm. talk, talking about it with people who have some familiarity with what, with what you've gone through. Um, I do find that fun, which is probably why I do so many videos on my channel. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's something about having this shared trauma bond where it's like, you too, you went through that crazy thing too. Let's talk about it. And sometimes it helps to have some sort of laughter and levity in the conversation. Otherwise it's just really dark. Yeah, it's true. And I've spent so many countless hours having uh, this type of conversation with former Scientologists that I just don't know that I've ever had a conversation like that with someone from uh, another group. And, oh, really? Uh, I, I, and it just looked like you and Jake were having so much fun in that conversation. I'm like, <laughs> okay, this is a conversation I want to have. Because uh, growing up in Scientology, um, for as much as Scientology talks about you know thinking of itself as a religion and they you know, they go through a lot of trouble to look like a religion. It's actually quite an anti-religious organization. Wow. So even though I grew up in this group, I know nothing really about Christianity other than, uh, you know, what, what you would just get from popular culture. Yeah. I know nothing. I don't know the difference between Mormon beliefs and Jehovah's Witnesses beliefs and Catholic beliefs. And I don't know why there's, you know, the Baptists and the, uh, I couldn't even give you all the, the different kinds of Christianity. evangelicals. <laughs> I don't know the differences between these groups. I, it, to me, it's silly that, that there's 30 different kinds of Christians. I'm like, what are you talking about? There's only one kind of Scientologist. <laughs> but like, even in, in Mormonism, uh, I can't imagine there's a ton of different offshoots, right? There's just a fundamentalist and non-fundamentalist or what? You know, there actually are a few. They're lesser known. But of course, you have the, the fundamentalist LDS, which are the ones who continued practicing polygamy after the government was like, nah, you need to stop. And then the mainstream Mormons were like, no, well, okay, we'll listen to the government. And other people were like, no, but Joseph Smith said. So that's kind of where that split happened. But then you also have the ones who are more survivalist and there are kind of they're not their own church but they're kind of groups within mainstream mormonism where they have like camper vans stocked full of ammo and guns and food and all the things for when the world ends so that's kind of its own little group of people but yeah it's so interesting and i'm learning all this stuff because i was raised in a bubble and we're gonna get into this about what it's like actually being raised in such a confined space mentally speaking and informationally speaking where you don't really know what's going on around you so 
I've been having so much fun learning about all of these groups, learning about Jehovah's Witnesses, now learning about Scientology. It's just, it's a lot of fun to discover and stay curious and hear what other people's experiences are. And like you said, realize, oh yeah, they're basically the same. <laughs> when you're raised in a cult, doesn't matter what label you put on it. It's basically the same thing. <laughs> right. So I, I do have a, a question that came to mind, even though I know we're going to do another chat later. Um, so the different brands of Mormonism, if mm -hmm. you will, uh, let's just take the, the normal mainstream church and the fundamentalist offshoot. Do these different offshoots think that only they are going to the Mormon version of heaven? I, I mean, I, there's a lot of assumptions baked into that question, but yeah. And that's a really good question. And I've only interviewed one uh, ex-fundamentalist on my channel. I plan to get more. But from what I understand and from my research that I've done into it, yes, they do believe that they're the only ones that are doing it right because they're following what the original prophet Joseph Smith said. So Joseph Smith laid out all these roles and same as Brigham Young and it got really dicey. In fact, there's one called the Blood Atonement where you were allowed, in fact, you were encouraged to murder someone if they wouldn't repent, slit their throat and spill their blood on the ground. And that would mean that they would be saved. So, of course, you can imagine that would get pretty messy. And so that's why you have shows like Under the Banner of Heaven that just came out that's actually based on a true story of this family going and killing other family members because they wouldn't repent. And by not repenting, they were just being mainstream Mormon instead of the original fundamentalist teachings of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. So, yeah, they they believe that the mainstream Mormons were led astray and they're led by false prophets now and that they're not doing it right. So it's pretty tricky. And so, so you grew up in mainstream Mormonism, right? I did. Yeah. So I often get the, how many moms did you have? I'm like, Ugh. I would get so annoyed at that question, Aaron. I would be like, oh my gosh, that's not Mormons. Like we stopped doing that 150 years ago. But in reality, I just didn't know that there were still other fundamentalists actively doing that, calling themselves Mormon. But I was like, that's not us. And people in my comments are like, we are not fundamentalists. This is misleading. And I'm like, yeah, but they're actually doing it right. <laughs> they're the ones that are actually following Mormonism. We're not. We're just kind of like a whitewash version of it. Interesting. So, but as a member of mainstream Mormonism, did you think that the people who were practicing fundamentalist Mormonism were still going to be able to participate in the afterlife that mainstream Mormons would? Or was there something, was there some consequence for them mispracticing the faith? Yeah. Yeah. I would say the second one, because once they disavowed polygamy, because, you know, the military made them stop, they said, it's one man and one woman for time and all eternity. However, this is the funny part, like you're not allowed to be in a polygamous relationship in this life, but in heaven, there's still polygamy. And they kind of skirt over it, but because it's in the scriptures, they can't get around it and they can't take it out. And in the scriptures, I mean the Book of Mormon that Joseph Smith wrote for himself so that he could have lots of wives. Um, they can't really take it out. So, for example, when you get sealed to someone in the temple, uh, that's basically what you have to do to get to the highest level of the highest level of heaven. You have to get sealed in the temple and do all these like weird culty rituals with your husband and wife. And once you're sealed for a woman, you have to get permission to 
basically get sealed to a second husband if you ever divorce. But for the man, he can get sealed to as many women as he wants. And it's understood that once you get to heaven, he will have all of those wives, like all the women he was sealed to, even if they're divorced, like they're his now. <laughs> you have to practice bullying me in heaven. So as a kid, to wrap this around to me as a child thinking about this, I remember specifically the day when they talked about polygamy in heaven. And I was like, oh, hell no. Oh, H-E double hockey sticks. No, <laughs> a kid. can't swear. I remember thinking, I will just never get divorced. That's not going to happen. And I'm just going to make sure that I don't die and my husband doesn't get remarried because I refuse to practice polygamy in heaven. And it really did a number on me. I remember that. Wow. Was there anything in in yours in Scientology? I guess... Do you consider it a religion? Like, would you refer to it as a religion? It depends on what someone means when they say religion. I tend to make the argument that Scientology charitably meets the definition of a religion. That it gets, it becomes a loaded question because one, I don't think Scientology deserves tax exemption. So people automatically right. assume that if, like, when I say I think it meets the definition of a religion, what I really mean is they do have genuinely and sincerely held beliefs that are religious in nature. So for example, they really do believe that we are all immortal spiritual beings that cannot die. That I mean, it's a genuinely truly held belief. Mm -hmm. They do genuinely believe that the Scientology auditing process is the, the way and the only way that we as spiritual beings can regain our native godlike powers and potential. They do really believe that. Now, I think it's BS. I think Scientology is a con. I think it's a fraud, but I don't think that's necessarily mutually exclusive from being a religion. And so I do call it a cult. That's the other thing. Someone goes, well, is it a real religion or is it a cult? I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. Uh and even if Scientology were to figure out how to reform its uh, more abusive practices, I would probably still call it a cult because they have this whole secret level of knowledge that you're not allowed to know. Like mm -hmm. you can ask, I think, let me correct me. You can ask a Mormon, what do you genuinely and honestly believe? And they can tell you right from day one. Is that correct? So I will say that there are levels of secrecy within Mormonism mm -hmm. that you don't learn until you get to the temple. Okay. There are levels of secrecy, but yes, for the most part, Mormons will be able to say, here are my beliefs. This is what I think. And this is what I this is what I know. Actually, this is what I know to be true. Um, but as far as a secrecy, yes, there are the temple rituals that you are literally sworn to secrecy for. Well, there you go. Okay, but your garden variety Christian, and I guess I don't even know what that is because I don't understand all the different <laughs> kinds of Christianity. Your garden variety Christian just believes what's in the Bible, and they're and they're not going to play games with that or dance around it or be, uh, uh, for the most part, embarrassed to say that. Yeah. Uh, um. At least that's that to my understanding, and and yet in Scientology, even at the highest levels, even someone who's done what they call the upper OT levels. They're not even allowed to talk about that stuff with other Scientologists who've done the upper OT levels. Yeah. Like no discussion about it is even permitted. Mm -hmm. So that's like your Xenu, your Xenu and the body thetans that you hear about in, in South Park. And basically anything that talks about Scientology these, these days talks about the Xenu and the aliens and the body thetans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that would be the equivalence of the temple ceremonies that even when you go to the temple, like you learn all the things and you can't talk while you're in the temple and you can't 
even talk to your spouse about it once you leave the temple. So everyone just leaves confused and everyone, they just say, I know it's weird, but just keep going until it makes sense. And so everyone's like, it must be me. I must be the one that's like not getting it. But it's just super weird. <laughs> so yeah, similar. That is just what they say to people who learn about Xenu on OT3. Really? <laughs> yes, that's incredible. So anyway, that's my long-winded answer to whether I think Scientology is a religion. Um, it, it's, you know, so, I, and what, it, 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 people have different thoughts on that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I guess I just wondered how to refer to it when we're going back and forth on in my religion and in your religion. So I didn't want to say your religion if you didn't feel like it oh, would be I get called it. that. I get it. Yeah, I don't have any strong feelings about it. But um, so the thing about, so, so you as a child struggled with this idea of what would happen how would you have to live? What would heaven be like? And Scientology, it's one of the ways where it's kind of um, anti-religious and really looks down its nose at other uh, real religions. Interesting. <laughs> is they don't, they don't believe in a heaven or a hell or an afterlife. They believe this is, this is life. This is the afterlife. This, what you see here is what will always be. And, um, and, and yet they still believe in the immortal spirit. They just mm. believe that this is the physical universe. The spiritual universe created the physical universe, and that's all there is. There's no God. There's no devil. There's no heaven. There's no hell. There's the spiritual universe called the Theta universe, and there's the physical universe that Theta created. And, and that's it. And if you die, um, due to the nature, uh, there's a whole lot of conspiracy theories that explain like what Scientologists think we're doing here on Earth and stuff. Uh, they think of Earth as a prison planet, and they think that these physical bodies are acting as prisons, and that we are pr we are actually being held prisoners in these bodies by an alien force. Oh, and and the alien force is able to sort of manipulate us spiritually. So we're we've been programmed spiritually, like in the little spirit brains. We've been programmed to when we drop our bodies, when when the body dies, to report into a between lives implant station that's run by these alien psychiatrists. And the implant station is where they wipe your memory and shoot you back down to earth to pick up another body. And that's essentially like, um, it's how, it's how they use earth as a prison planet to keep us as beings. So, so the beings here on earth were the troublemakers of the galaxy. And so we were sent here to earth as a prison and, the best prison is one that you don't know that you're in so that you'll never try to get out. So we're living here on earth, these lives. We think we're having fun in our lives. We're really here as prisoners. And so Scientology <laughs> sees itself as basically operating as, as Morpheus and Neo in the okay, matrix. That's of what I was going to say. <laughs> 100%. Okay. The, okay. The matrix analogy works in so many ways. Yeah. Uh, with respect to Scientology. And Tom Cruise is like Neo. Yeah. <laughs> you could say you could say L. Ron Hubbard and David Miscavige are like Morpheus, but uh -uh. Tom Cruise is the chosen one. He's <laughs> Neo. <laughs> okay. I have so many questions, Aaron. So first of all, I'm as you were talking, you're saying that there's no heaven and hell, but this is kind of hell because it's a prison. But then if there's no Satan or demons, but like who, what do they say is tempting you to do wrong things or bad things? Because you still have a, like a moral code where you're in ethics or out ethics, right? So like, how does that work? Sure, but that, yeah, but that ethics doesn't, that ethics, that morality doesn't come 
from anything divine. It doesn't come from uh, anything that you're supposed to abide by in order to enter the afterlife. L. Ron Hubbard created a whole definition of ethics, and it has to do with what's the, uh, the, what's the greatest survival. So, you know, um, going around and murdering everybody in Scientology wouldn't be considered inherently unethical if the people you were murdering were doing bad things to society. Like the only reason. Oh, wow. Yeah, like, like there's no Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, thou, sh- thou shalt not right. murder. It's, it's really just, he really breaks it down in a very like sort of sober, analytical way, just stripping it of any emotion that you've got. You know, he, well, he starts out by defining ethics as essentially something that you should calculate based on what is the greatest good for the greatest people. And they okay. break that down in Scientology. Um, the word they use in Scientology is called uh, the eight dynamics. And the dynamic is basically what the eight, the eight parts, uh, the eight different areas that L. Ron Hubbard would break life up into. So very quickly, first dynamic is self, second dynamic is family, third dynamic is any other group you could be a part of other than just family. The fourth dynamic is all humankind. The fifth dynamic is all non-human life. The sixth dynamic is just the physical universe, anything you can see and touch that's not alive. The seventh dynamic is just spirituality, uh, spiritual beings collectively. And the eighth dynamic is sort of eternity or the allness of all, or sometimes you can call it the God dynamic. They sort of call it the God dynamic as like, wink, wink, we don't believe in God, but we're going to call it the God dynamic because some people believe in God. Interesting. So L. Ron Hubbard said, what is ethical is whatever is the greatest good for the greatest number of dynamics. Okay. And it has nothing to do with some greater sense of morality. If you can, you know, do this little uh, ethical arithmetic and determine that murdering this guy is best for me and my family and my group and mankind, then it's ethical. There's nothing inherently wrong with it. Wow. Okay. That leaves room for so much confusion. Like, I can only imagine you trying to figure out, like, going through life, is this okay? Am I going to get in trouble for this? But if it's, like, so if I steal, like, if I steal from Scientology, that's wrong. But what if I steal from Scientology to feed a poor family? Like, would that be okay? Or would you get in trouble for that? Right. Well, good question. Now, this whole system of defining ethics gets weighted heavily in favor of Scientology. Right. Because if you ascribe to the prison planet story, and if you ascribe to the idea that only Scientology can unplug everybody from the matrix and free them from this prison on earth, anything that's good for Scientology is by definition good for all of the other dynamics. Okay. So anything you can do to further the aims of Scientology is by definition ethical. And that is why you had Scientology perpetrating the largest infiltration of the federal government in the history of the United States in the 70s. I mean, 12 Scientologists went to prison, including L. Ron Hubbard's wife, for what was the largest infiltration uh, of all levels of the U.S. government to steal records relating to Scientology and all this kind of stuff. Uh, uh, this is called Operation Snow White. It's uh, You can find out about it easily anywhere on the internet. Um, and that was considered ethical, because it was to protect Scientology and forward the aims of Scientology. Wow. I mean, that whole operation was run by L. Ron Hubbard and his wife. Well, that's super convenient for Scientology. (laughs) So I guess I'm trying to figure out, it almost feels like, and I know uh, we haven't mentioned this yet, but we are doing a full discussion on your channel as well, comparing Mormonism and Scientology. And one of the things that I had noticed is like, 
the the head of the church, so L. Ron Hubbard or David Miscavige, really kind of acts as a prophet that you're just supposed to do whatever they say. Even though they don't say that they're a prophet, it feels like like this is what we say until we change our minds and then do this instead. And that's very much like the Mormon church where you have like we just had a general conference where all all the higher ups, the prophet, everyone speaks. And this is what God says, guys. And this is what you need to know. And we just had someone say, well, follow the prophet, but the current prophet. So ignore all the previous ones because like don't throw out today's wisdom for yesterday's prophet. And we're thinking, but aren't prophets supposed to prophesy and tell us what to do in the future? So why wouldn't we listen to them? Because they know that they've been contradicting themselves forever and people are catching on. And when I was watching your episode on the aftermath, I was like, oh my gosh, it's the same thing where it's like, this is what the leader says until he changes his mind. Then everyone has to redo stuff and start all over and just do what the current guy says. Is that accurate? It is accurate. In Scientology, this gets really weird because L. Ron Hubbard not only doesn't believe in a God, uh, he actively says there is no God and doesn't claim to have any sort of divine inspiration or connection or identity. Like really? L. Ron Hubbard doesn't even claim to be some special kind of being. The, Scientologists what? don't think, Scientologists think that whatever whatever L. Ron Hubbard had, you too can get by doing Scientology's bridge. There's not like different levels of beings or, or thetans, which makes it even harder to understand why everybody treats L. Ron Hubbard like you would treat a prophet right. or a god. Some people go, well, what, what, what's the reason? Why does everyone, what's the reason everyone believes they're following this one man? Yeah. In the most important policy letter in Scientology, that's called Keeping Scientology Working, he actually says, we will not speculate as to how I came to rise above the bank. Uh, the bank is their word for the reactive mind. The reactive mind is Scientology's version of like the Freudian subconscious. Uh, the reactive mind is what Scientology is trying to get rid of. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and so, so the process of getting rid of the reactive mind to Scientologists, that is Scientology. That's what it's all about. And L. Ron Hubbard says only he was able to figure out how to get rid of the reactive mind. And he had to sort of rise above the reactive mind in order to figure out how to get rid of the reactive mind because he doesn't claim that he never had one. He claims that he did have one, but he figured out how to get rid of it. And he doesn't even say... And here's how I did that. <laughs> you know, he, there's no involvement of a, a, of a higher being, a higher power, or anything. And he literally says verbatim, "We will not speculate as to how I came to rise above the bank." And I remember thinking, I think that's the one thing we should be speculating about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's kind of important. But then, how does he claim to know, like? All of the alien story stuff, if he's not special in some way. Well, he doesn't say he's not special. He says, we're not going to speculate as to why I'm special. <laughs> okay. And, and, if you go, and if you were to go, okay, but, but then in what ways is he saying he's special? He's just saying that he figured he was able to figure it all out. That's why he's special. He doesn't okay. tell you why he was able to figure it all out. Now, there is an aspect of Scientology that sort of explains this, but not completely. And it has to do with a book that L. Ron Hubbard wrote called The Hymn of Asia, where he claims that he was Buddha. 
and that he created Buddhism as, as Buddha. Gautama Siddhartha, I oh. believe, is the name Buddha had. He says, basically, I was Buddha. And I'm paraphrasing it because even in this yeah. book, he sort of like dances around this, all of this, and implies it very heavily, but never just comes outright and says it, okay? <laughs> okay. He says he was Buddha. And he created Buddhism to create what he thought was this permanent state of Bodhi or Bodhi. I can, I can never remember which one it is. And, and when he finished that work, you know, he dropped his body and, and moved on. And to his chagrin, he later found out that that was only a temporary state. And he intended to create a permanent state of enlightenment. And he had to come back as L. Ron Hubbard to create Dianetics and Scientology, to create Scientology's state of clear, which is permanent and is what he really was trying to accomplish when he was Buddha. Now, I don't know enough about Buddhism to know whether that really answers the question or not. Like, I don't know what Buddha's story is for how he became Buddha or how, yeah. how I don't know how Buddha came to rise above the bank. <laughs> <laughs> And as a young, I remember I was probably 13 years old, maybe 14 at the oldest when I first read this book. And I remember being so happy when I read it because I was like, oh, I can finally answer the question for why we think L. Ron Hubbard is so special. He was Buddha and everybody loves Buddha. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> I remember being happier just that I had an answer to the question and not necessarily whether... I believed it or not. Like yeah. I wasn't searching. I wasn't searching for the answer of, oh no, why do we follow L. Ron Hubbard? I just was just sort of slightly embarrassed that I knew that if somebody asked me, I wouldn't have a good answer. And I think this is interesting. It's kind of interesting to think about um, how this speaks to s sort of the, the thought control that exists in these high control groups. Yeah, It didn't bother me that I didn't have an answer to the question. It just bothered me that I wouldn't have an answer that would make someone else happy. Mm. And so when I read this thing, I was like, oh, I don't have to feel embarrassed anymore. If someone asks me what's so special about L. Ron Hubbard, I can go, he was Buddha. <laughs> yeah. That, uh -huh. And I wanted to talk about that. Like your perspective as a kid, a teenager, and even into your adulthood. Um, but I know we kind of wanted to focus in on the kids stuff today. Were were people asking questions? I mean, I know that I had an answer, right? When once I moved out of Utah and everyone started asking me all the weird stuff and I had to have I had to come up with something. I'm like, what is the least weird way to explain Mormonism? And I would just give them like something that made sense. But if they were to look into it further, they'd be like, yeah, no, that doesn't make sense. So, for example, I remember this one time. It was so embarrassing. So I'm a I'm probably like 16 at this point, and I was trying to convince these two boys that Mormonism was the right way to go. And they're like, so tell me about Mormonism. And I think the only answer I gave them was, well, you believe in the Bible, right? Yeah, cool. Well, it's just another testament of God that this guy named Joseph Smith found and translated. And he was like, cool. And then they're like, so where are the, the plates now that he translated from? And then that's when I'm like, well, God took him back to heaven. <laughs> so embarrassing like it was going so well until I didn't have a good answer a logical answer even I was like this sounds ridiculous but I I had to say I had to believe it I was in too deep but I didn't know anything different so it was like yeah that's what it is <laughs> did you have anything like that where you were trying to like explain away things to people I would only run into that when I would go and visit my dad 
and his his new wife and their family, and we'd be at these because my my parents were never married. That's why I have the two mm-hmm. last names. My mom's name is my last name is Smith, and my dad's last name is Levin. And my mom is the one who raised us, and she's the one who got into Scientology. And we would visit my dad, you know, over the summers and stuff. So when we would go to Minnesota to visit him and his wife's family, uh, we would get these very uncomfortable questions. And looking back on it, it was even more uncomfortable considering we were children being asked these questions by people. Yeah. It's like, who asks a child to explain, uh, you know, <laughs> their, their religion. quote unquote, re- their religious beliefs. Yeah. And, and I remember, yeah, I was, it was very anxiety inducing. How do I describe Scientology and not just describe it. You're trying to describe it in a way that convinces them. Like it's exactly. not, the goal isn't just to give them information. It's to win them over. Yeah. And it was it was very anxiety inducing. <laughs> it really was uh, because Scientology really does, and I know this is true for the other groups as well. Think that it is the only way. It also mm-hmm. has this weird thing where it doesn't consider itself to be a, 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 a faith or a belief. It doesn't. Now I have to assume Mormonism does go. Yes, we're a faith. We're a belief, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what Christians believe, right? It's a yeah. faith. And it's okay to say this is true because it's in the Bible without having to explain it further, right? That's that's an okay thing to do? Pretty much, yeah. So in Scientology, that doesn't really exist. Like if L. Ron Hubbard says it, yes, you're supposed to believe it. But you're supposed to tell yourself that you're not just believing it because L. Ron Hubbard said it. You're believing it because it's demonstrably, provably, and objectively true. Oh. Um, and you, there's no fallback. You can't go, well, this is just what we believe. Scientologists would go, no, no, we don't believe anything. This is just what's true. You can see it. You can see it for yourself. Mm. Um, and so that made those conversations more challenging because when, when the family members would push back on anything that we were saying, we couldn't just go, well, that's just what L. Ron Hubbard said. So that's what we believe. No, we had to keep defending it and explaining it and defending it and explaining it. And it was, it was very uncomfortable, but that would only happen when we were visiting extended family, because at that Mm -hmm. time in my life, I was still completely in the bubble. I mean, I was training at at flag here in Clearwater, Florida flags, the name of the giant Scientology organization here in Clearwater. We didn't interact with non-Scientologists at all on a day-to-day basis for years. Yeah. That's how it was growing up in Utah where you rarely run into someone who's not Mormon. And even if you do, like they don't really push it because they don't want to be excluded from all the activities. So you're explaining these things to your family members. Did you find that it helped you double down on your beliefs or did it start to make you question? I I would say neither really. Uh, It it was really just felt like, you know, just walking through a minefield and and being glad I got through the conversation. Like, like in the conversation, I was just sort of just being put in a defensive situation and it was just uncomfortable. I didn't necessarily, didn't necessarily make me dig my heels in harder per se. It was just an annoyance. It's just something that made me not want to interact with non-Scientologists like at that time. Cause it's like, I don't need this. I don't need this bullshit. (laughs) I don't need this. I don't need this trouble. I don't need to deal with your questions. Like, I'm fine doing my thing. Like, this is just an annoyance. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) yeah. I definitely know the feeling. And I also think that that speaks to the programming as a child, where if you're not thinking one way or the other, that just means that's how life is. And that's how life is. Like, there's no reason for you to question it or even want to believe it harder if that's just 
your reality. Would you say that that's a true statement? I think it's totally true. I think it's totally true. And I know there's no way to police or enforce what I'm about, what I'm about to say, but it seems to me that it is so, so wrong to force any type of religious beliefs on children, mm-hmm. given how a child will go down whatever path you put them on and and will believe, they won't even question it. It'll just It'll just be what they think is reality. And it just seems like, I mean, I know every person thinks their group is the right one. So of course the right thing to do is to force that on your child. It's like, (laughs) Oh my goodness. Not at all. Not at all. You know, Scientology has some beliefs about children that I think make it very much different than these um, other more mainstream organizations. And that's something I'd really be interested to, to chat with you about is, um, you know, one of the things about growing up in Scientology is that Scientology does not believe in children, which sounds like a weird thing to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, my understanding is most Abrahamic faiths believe in a single lifetime. Is that fair to say? Would you agree yeah. with that? Yeah. And so as such, in your single lifetime, it, you have a developmental stage. You can be a child, you can be a teen, you can be an adult, you can be an elderly person. Scientologists' belief in the fact that we're all you know, 76 trillion years old and you just live lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, that your body is just more of an illusion than anything else. You aren't your body. You're a 76 trillion year old spiritual being that if you're one years old, if you're in a one year old body, that means, you know, one year and one day ago, you were probably a 90 year old person or a 60 year old person. You were a full grown adult about two minutes before you were born into your new body. And so Scientologists do not believe that children are children. They believe you're a fully mature spiritual being who happens to be occupying a body that is so small and new that you're just struggling to control it. Wow. And and so it's not considered virtuous to be a child. In fact, it's sort of considered a little bit of an aberration. You're, a, a Scientologist would say, you're really just dramatizing being a child. You're, you're kind of acting out. Um, and I'm using a lot of Scientology words and I shouldn't because I don't want to define them. No, um, that's okay. That, that if you are a young child, in order to manifest being fully spiritually aware, you wouldn't act like a child. You'd be acting like an adult. Because wow. people who are acting like children are just acting out of amnesia of the fact that, you know, a a few moments earlier, you were a full-grown adult with a life, a house, a career, real-world problems, and now your biggest problem is whether you can have your blanket or not. So Scientology is almost like snap out of it, stop acting in this amnesia state of child and and get with the program, which is why children, as soon as they're old enough to read and write and understand the words L. Ron Hubbard wrote, as soon as children are old enough to, to understand Scientology, they are pressured to do Scientology. Wow. And okay. Can I stop you for a second? Because I got, yeah, go ahead. I'm noticing some holes here. <laughs> so <laughs> the first being... Punishing a child for the amnesia state when you just told me about the creation story where after you drop your body, you go to like an alien hub and they wipe your memory. Isn't that like don't how do you punish someone for part of the the process? 
it's not literally punishment. It's not so like it's not like a Scientology parent would scold their child for not being able to remember their past life. Right. But there wouldn't be a whole lot of patience and understanding of like, oh, children are just children. And they're like, well, no, children act like children because they went to the implant station and they don't remember their past lives. And he really should just snap out of it. (laughs) I'm not saying Scientology. I'm not. I, I know there's a lot of Scientology parents who would go, that's not how I treated my children. Well, you can never paint everybody with the same brush. Yeah. But the belief of system course. of Scientology is such that a, a child acting as a child is not considered, oh, that's just wonderful. It's like, eh. By by indulging that state, even though even though you could argue, well, the child didn't wipe his own memory. That happened at the implant station. He's not uh-huh. responsible for that. A Scientologist would go, okay, fine. Yes, he's not responsible for that. But don't indulge it. Don't right. don't indulge it. Don't validate it. Don't make them feel like it's good that they're behaving in this way. It's okay to treat children as adults in Scientology. And they are treated as adults in Scientology. There aren't protections that exist in Scientology for children. Ch- um, children are pushed to – in fact, there's this other concept in Scientology that by not – making a child contribute to the family or the group or society in the same way that an adult does, you're actually forcing that child to become criminal. You're forcing that child to be criminal and that that's actually part of why children misbehave. What? Is they're dramatizing being criminal because they're not able to contribute the way uh, a healthy member of society would contribute. And so children are, I mean- I'm not exaggerating these things. I'm losing my mind. Uh, I know there's Scientology parents who would take issue with, you know, connecting a belief system to to behavior. Like they might go, well, maybe some Scientology parents uh, do that, but I didn't. And you, well, then you weren't being a good Scientology parent. I mean, yeah. yeah. uh, (laughs) Okay. Another question I have for you, though, is if if Scientology is so based on the tech and things that are provable and knowable by science, right? Wouldn't they understand that even if so, even if it's true, the reincarnation thing, which I think who knows, maybe, but like, even if you have a two trillion year old um, spirit in a child's body, they're still governed by their child brain and their brain is only developed in a certain capacity to be able to handle themselves and critical thinking and empathy and all those things that we know come over time. So do they just completely ignore the the facts of the body, the way that the body affects the behavior? Yeah, they don't believe in brain development. Oh, what? <laughs> okay. So, okay. And, and that comes from the belief that the thetan is what is animating the body, not the brain. They believe oh. the thetan, the thetan is what is seeing, not the eyeballs. Um, and he does, Alvin Hubbard does it at some places describe the brain as sort of a switchboard. Um, he, he sort of dips his toe into this pool without swimming around in it of like just how limited should a physical body be if it loses brain function? Should a thetan be able to completely animate a body if it has decreased brain function. And a Scientologist would say, 
Well, if the Thetan was in good shape, yes, it could. The brain doesn't operate the body, the Thetan does. Wow. Um, a Scientologist would say a Thetan that's in really good shape could see even if his eyes, even if the optic nerve was severed. Now, that's why I say you, you, they dip their toe in this pool, but they don't swim in it. Because right. you're like, well then, well, then why aren't Scientologists able to see when they're having problems with their eyes? Like, So <laughs> they have this belief that is kind of completely divorced from and anything in the real world experience. Yeah. But they 100% don't believe in this idea that your brain is fully formed. Your brain isn't fully formed until I've heard like 23, 24 years old. A Scientologist would say that is psych propaganda mm. designed to control the population. Scientologists wow. wouldn't believe that for a second. Okay. Well, that makes a lot more sense in your stories. How did this translate for you as a child having this mindset and being treated as an adult because you I think you mentioned in your story with Leah that you lived in your own apartment how old were you when you had to live separate from your mom I'm 13 years old okay was the last time I ever actually had a a parent in my life as a parental figure the way you would normally think about it so uh we were here in Clearwater Florida all of the Scientology staff members that were studying and training and working here at the time all lived in, in and just basically a giant apartment complex uh, here in Clearwater, Florida. Uh, it's still there and that's still what it's used for. And so, uh, but these apartment complexes are separated by gender. And so uh, we were in a three bedroom apartment and each bedroom had three people in it. And then there was two extra beds in the living room. What? And I mean, it was sort of like, uh, uh, maybe you want to compare it to boarding school. Like yeah. you go off to a dorm in a boarding school, except you didn't spend any time there. You just slept there. Like you weren't, oh. it's not like you're hanging out there. You just sleep there. And so, and of course my mom was in, you know, a dorm for women uh-huh. and we were, we were all on the same schedule. So we were all working, working or studying from, you know, eight in the morning to 10, 11 o'clock at night. So I would see my mom at meal breaks and I would maybe see her at the end of the day, but I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to say something and then I'll walk it back. She wasn't playing the role of mom anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was sort of uh, overseeing us to the degree that she could, but that was no longer her role because we were now doing the exact same thing in life, essentially. Oh, she wasn't really making more money than we were making. We're just all making about 20, 30 bucks a week. So, um, you know, she was no longer quote unquote taking care of us. She might've been there to make sure we were doing okay, but she was no longer taking care of us. If you know what I mean? Yeah. She, she was no longer providing for us. How about that? She was no longer providing for us as a parent. Yeah. How did that make you feel? Were you okay with that? Were you like, yeah, this is the mission. I'm an adult. Were, Were you empowered by that? At the time? Absolutely. At the time? Absolutely. And this is something that I think makes a really interesting conversation point because as a kid, now remember, I didn't grow up and I didn't have a normal childhood. So sometimes these questions are a little rhetorical. Like as a kid, what what might be your biggest gripe? That you're treated like a kid. You don't have rights. You can't do what you want. You got to listen to your parents. Like, you know, where does all that teen angst come from? (laughs) Having to live under someone else's roof by someone else's rules. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you want to be your own person and everything. And, and I think this sort of gets to the subject of brain development. Like as a child, you think you are so much more developed than you are. And that was certainly true for me. <laughs> so 
from those ages, that experience that I had from about the age of 13 to 15 and 16, um, I look back on that period of my life quite fondly, to be honest. So not only did I have a lot of rights and freedoms and privileges and you know self-determination to, to the, the degree that you can have that working within Scientology, but there was like 200 other kids there my age from all around the world doing the same thing I was doing. Whoa. And so when I, when I say it was a positive experience, I would say the vast majority of what, I, what I'm even referring to is the social experience. Okay. You could be digging ditches, and if you're doing it with your friends, you're probably having a good time. Okay. And, and um, that's something that I probably have not been clear enough about in the past telling my story, or, or at least even thinking about it to myself, is how much of my positive thoughts about that time was just due to having fun with people my own age, even if what we were doing was kind of bullshit. Yeah, but I mean, it makes total sense because you're making the best out of the situation. And like you said, you're a child who has this inflated sense of power and confidence and you're changing the world and you're on a mission and you you have all these kids around you. It, it would kind of be similar to EFY, which is called Especially for Youth. I think they just changed the name of it in Mormonism. But basically, people come from all over the world just the youth. And it's like this weekend long thing. You pay a bunch of money and you go and you do all these activities and you're like changing the world as Mormons. So I'm assuming it would be like that, but 24 seven. So of course you're going to make the most of it and that's your life and you don't know any different. So I think it's great that you were able to form a positive experience from that. And I think what I'm wondering is you had such a positive experience as a teenager when naturally you would want your own independence and you don't want to follow anyone else's rules like a parental figure. But how did you feel when you were little? Like that must have felt really frustrating having an adult try and treat you like an adult when you don't really know any better. You don't know what's going on. Yeah. I mean, it was frustrating. What can make it hard for me to do a great job answering the question is I go, I don't have anything to compare it to. Right. Um, but, you know, like as a child, there are certain, t- uh, now that I have children of my own, right. you know, I have three daughters, six, 16, 14, and 12 now. And, you know, my youngest daughter is now as old as I was when I started working full-time for Scientology. I couldn't even fathom having my daughter do that. Yeah. My oldest daughter is the age that I was, um, is actually older than the age that I was when I finished my Scientology training in Clearwater and went back to Philadelphia by myself without my mother at the age of 15 to work for Scientology for 100 hours a week, downtown center city, Philadelphia, Whoa. Uh, 8, 8.30 in the morning to, to 10.30 at night, commuting by myself, by bus from downtown Philly to South Jersey. Just got the chills. I <laughs> I, I don't let my 16-year-old walk around the park by herself. Yeah. And um, this is why uh, sometimes when I tell my story, I have to make it clear that I feel like I personally kind of walked through fire without getting burned in, in many ways. Like I went through this very potentially horribly abusive situation and managed to get abused as little as possible. And sometimes it can make it challenging to tell my story because it's like, is it, 
I, I, I go, I, I have to listen to it and go, does this really sound like a cautionary tale or does this sound like you had a great childhood? Sure. <laughs> Sometimes the way that I tell my story, especially because I'm kind of a positive person, it can sound like I'm saying, well, it really wasn't that bad. Right. When what I'm really trying to say is for most people, the potential for abuse here is astounding. And the fact that I managed not to experience most of that, I feel very lucky and fortunate. Mm-hmm. And my wife traveled a similar path. Um, she grew up in Scientology as well. And I think it's very important. It's very interesting and important to note that even when my wife and I, when we had our first children, we were still Scientologists. And without even talking to each other and making this agreement uh, ahead of time, we did not raise our kids in Scientology. Like oh. we had our first ch- child when we were 2000 in 2006. We didn't officially leave Scientology until 2014. That's 8 years of ch- that's 8 years of children. Our kids are all 2 years apart. So we already had all 3 of our children by the time we left Scientology. We never introduced one iota of Scientology to our kids. That's so interesting. I think it's kind of a testament to we both sort of felt like Eh, we sort of came out okay, but there's not one part of us that thinks it's okay to expose our own children to this. Our kids never even heard the word Scientology until the Aftermath show aired. No. Seriously. There was just something about it. And what makes this story even crazier is my wife and I did not have a conversation where we agreed not to introduce Scientology to our kids. That is so wild. (laughs) Like, I've never heard of that happening, especially in Mormonism. It's like your whole goal is to get married, have kids so you can raise future Latter-day Saints. Like, that's the point. So that's that's incredible that you were able to do that. And it must have just been an innate feeling, like an intuitive. We don't want to do this. We are the lucky ones. We don't want to subject our children to this. How lucky for your children that you both felt that way. Wow. And so I wanted to speak to something real quick, which is you mentioned, okay, I I felt like I had a genuinely okay childhood. I came out pretty much unscathed, which is great. What I wanted to ask, though, is now that you have children and you touched on it a little bit and you're able to see them growing up and them developing into adults, do you have a different perspective? Are you able to kind of recognize now that you do have something to compare it to? Oh, that wasn't okay that I was treated that way. Or, oh, I do have some deprogramming to do here because I wasn't really modeled on how to be a parent. And now I have to parent these children in a different way. Are you starting to kind of unwind or do you still pick apart things that you realize, oh, that was from Scientology that I need to kind of fix now? 100%. And it's it, it's a challenge. It, it's a challenge. Yeah. I, I do have a general impatience. However you were treated as a child tends to be how you kind of, yeah. kind of how you treat others. And th- there is an impatience that I have that I do think comes from this idea that there's no such thing as being extra permissible for children. There's no such thing as, oh, it's okay. Everyone has accidents. Uh, you know, oh, it's okay. Sometimes things happen. Like I, I do have a general impatience that I have to sort of catch myself on and go, children are not the same 
as adults. Mm. You can't have the same expectations. They understand at a different level. They process at a different level. Children forget. That's part of being a child. You know, <laughs> getting, uh, you, you can't fix those things because that is the nature of those things. Yeah. Now, my, my kids are at 12, 14, or 16. I've probably done most of the damage that I'm going to do to them <laughs> psychically through my Scientology programming. But um, thankfully, my kids are very well adjusted, exceedingly you know, uh, intelligent, smart individuals. But that's, pro- that's probably, to some extent, in spite of, <laughs> of um, my, my, my parenting coming from those ingrained Scientology beliefs. Uh, but luckily, m- my wife t- tends to be sort of the polar opposite. She's exceedingly patient. <laughs> <laughs> exceedingly patient. So that's fine. Oh, that's I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure Scientology isn't the only reason, uh, parents are impatient with children, but for <laughs> me, I feel like it's a, it's a major piece. Yeah, that makes sense. But, uh, yeah, but, and, and this all came from this idea that, you know, they're just, they don't believe in brain development. They don't believe in children and, um, and, and you treat, and you make them, you make children into criminals by allowing them to just be children. Ugh. And when I, when I say I have good memories of that time, memory is a very selective thing. It's a very selective thing. The fact is there were many times during those formative years of 12 to 16 where I would sit with the idea of, I really don't want to be doing this, mm. but I have no choice. I have no choice. It's not possible to step off of this path. And, uh, and, and the fact that, that I, and I think any child is just so malleable, you put them in a situation, they're going to figure out how to survive and probably how to have as much fun as is possible in the process. That doesn't make the situation. Okay. Yeah. And this is something that has been a source of conflict between my mom and I, even, even to this day, like she doesn't want to hear that that we didn't want to do all that and it wasn't in our best interests. You know, she'll say, you guys wanted to do it. Mm. And it's like, what a, like, do you have any concept of the idea of consent? Like, right. uh, let's take that. Let's take that. You wanted to do it to its extreme here. There are certain things children aren't simply capable of wanting to do. Yeah. And to, to sort of use that against the child later of like, Oh, you guys wanted to do it. It's like, we were children. Yeah. If anything, we wanted to do it because you told us we should want to do it. Like, come on now. Yeah, that's tricky. And I did, I know we're running short on time. I did want to ask about what they, what their views are on consent, because if you don't view children as children, do you have an age of consent? I mean, are you, Nope. there? no, the only reason there is any idea of age of consent in Scientology is because of the laws of the land and because you're not supposed to do anything that would bring criminal attention onto Scientology or Scientologists. Oh. If you, there's, no, there's no inherent idea in Scientology about consent. Oh, that's just uh, so awful. If some... Like- if some if some crazy nation state were to lower the age of consent to to six, Scientologists would, you know, move there and wouldn't be considered unethical in Scientology. It's like whatever the laws of the land say is fine. There's no idea 
of consent. That is absolutely terrifying because you know that things are happening within Scientology thinking, well, if we don't get caught, it's fine because we don't really have any rules around that. Because if you're only following it because the laws of the land say that, that is terrifying. Yeah. Let me tell you, when someone in Scientology is found out to have engaged in um, underage adult activities, the only questions the church is concerned with is, what is the law and have the statute of limitations expired? (gasps) And even if it was illegal, if the statute of limitations have already expired, you're okay to continue (gasps) doing your courses and your audit. No. So they don't punish you at all. You might have to pay for some extra auditing and whatnot, but you're not like getting kicked out. Oh, that is not okay. That's like hurting my heart. And the only reason you're paying for the extra auditing is because it was against the law, not because it was immoral. Oh my gosh, I'm losing my mind. That is just awful. That is awful. I'm so happy you did not raise your children in this. I know, I know, I know. It's... uh. They're happy too. But I do want to go back to what your mom said really fast because I can understand as a parent, you do the best you can with the information that you have available. And of course, if you think that this is the best thing for your child, you're going to want the best thing for your child and you're going to want them to grow up in it, which is what a lot of Mormons do. I have a whole conversation with my mom, multiple on my channel about, she's like, yeah, sorry, like I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have raised you Mormon, but here we are. You know, I did the best I could because I thought that that's what was best. And making them feel like, well, that's what you wanted to do. I wanted to go to church. I went to church every Sunday. I went to all the activities. I did. I was very active. I was the most devout in my family out of my siblings. And the same thing when it comes to missions. They'll say, oh, I was, I'm so proud of my child for choosing to go on a service mission and spending two years of their life serving the Lord. That kid didn't choose that. He felt pressured and he felt obligated and he only did it because he wanted to make you happy and proud. And maybe he really believed that he wanted to go. But like you were saying, he believed that because he was taught that that's what he should believe is right. So right. there's like a whole web there. And I, I don't want to come across as shaming and berating parents who raise their children in cults and Scientology and Mormonism. I get it. You're doing the best you can. What we're trying to do here is to spread awareness and help people understand uh, for those who aren't already involved, don't get involved in cults like this because it will harm your child either mentally, physically, emotionally, or spiritually. It's not good for them, developmentally speaking, to be governed by these rules that cause guilt and shame and fear and all the things that a child doesn't need in order to grow and expand and love and become independent and and be, I don't know, happier and healthier. I think it's just, it's good that you have your channel. I applaud you for everything that you're doing and exposing Scientology for what it is, sharing people's stories and helping people understand, and not only just to expose it, but to help people feel not so alone and help them to see their experience in other people and go, oh, okay, so me feeling this way was actually a normal thing. Now I don't feel weird for it because Like you were saying in Scientology, you're punished for your emotions. You're punished for having big feelings. So you can't really express that. So, I mean, that's just a long-winded compliment of saying, great job for doing what you're doing. (laughs) And and I also just want to button it with how you're doing now and like how you're handling the stress and the publicity and and being such a vocal, suppressive person. 
I tend to think I'm handling it well. I mean, it's something I've, I've kind of jumped into with eyes wide open. Um, part of my goal is to show everyone that Scientology wants you to be afraid of them and what they can do and what they will say about you. Um, but there's no real reason to uh, be afraid. Uh, they tend to be very ineffective in everything that they do. Um, <laughs> they don't have any credibility in the eyes of society. And the more people uh, who sort of speak out and tell their story and shine the light on the abusive practices of Scientology. The more people who do it, the, the more protection there is because Scientology doesn't have enough resources to harass everybody at the same time. So right. <laughs> even if even if acting as somewhat of a, of a lightning rod um, makes it easier for other people to do something similar, um, I, I'm, I'm happy to do that. And, uh, you know, I mean, they've got a whole hate website. My AaronSmith11.com is a hate website created by Scientology. You know what? I, f- I found it when I was doing research on you. I was like, started to read it. I'm like, oh, this is one of the smear websites. <laughs> I was like, wow, it's so long. And there's so many things in there. And I just started laughing. I was like, wow. You know, I feel like to be more effective, they should just focus on one or two things. Like he did this <laughs> and this. And then it would be like, Maybe that happened. But to have like this enormous laundry list of things, I'm like, okay, well, clearly like none of that can be true. Yeah. And um, uh, I've, I've started doing reaction videos to the hate videos that Scientology posts on the website, uh, which oh is just really funny. And people go, oh, you should get, you know, get them to take that website down. And I go, why bother? I want to be able to show people that way. Oh, let me show you. Do. Let me show you how horrible Scientology is. Let, let me show you. Yeah. And um, you know, every single person that was on Leah Remini's show got their own website. Did you know that? <laughs> I did not, but I'm not surprised. Every single person who appeared on the show. I mean, that's actually why the website is there. That website went live the night that my episode of Leah Remini's show aired. And wow. so I'm kind of like uh, having a platform to be able to shine the light back on Scientology. Uh, it is pretty empowering. I mean, it, it is yeah. empowering. I feel like Scientology has met its match with YouTube and new media. And um, it's very hard for Scientology to silence someone, uh, either from fear or litigation. Uh, they used to be very, very effective at doing that. And they're, it's just very hard for them to do it these days. And if it was easy, then they'd be able to silence me. And if they can't silence me, then they probably <laughs> can't silence anyone else either. <laughs> Well, that is a beacon of hope. And yeah, you're right. It's so funny. They're just drowning in all the bad media. I used to live in Hollywood um, a few months ago, and I would just walk down the Walk of Fame to take Oscar here for walks. And there's like a few Scientology buildings. And one of them has a big banner on the side that's like, you've seen uh, or you've heard the stories. Now you can hear ours. Or do you want to hear ours? And I'm like, no, I'm set. I think I'm good. I don't need to, I don't need to hear your stories. Scientology. I'm out. <laughs> That's great. So this has been amazing. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your stories and your perspectives. Before we go, I got to get your Linda Listen moment, your sassy statement as the viral video goes with the toddler or some inspirational thoughts for our listeners. You know, I think I just want to end maybe with a message to Scientologists uh, in the vein of what we've already been talking about, because I know this is something that doesn't even cross many of their minds. And that is um, the effect of bringing up your children um, in this framework that almost almost encourages grooming and, and the mm-hmm. effect that that has on them growing up as people 
as young adults. You know, the process of auditing is going into a room alone with a stranger and Mm -hmm. knowing that you have to subject yourself, you have to follow the commands of this person without question, and you are not allowed to leave. I can tell you that, you know, even though I said I've got mostly positive memories of those younger years and I came out okay, what one thing during my whole time in Scientology that I was terrified might be too strong of a word, but I'm going to use terrified, terrified of getting auditing and going into an auditing session. As a child, there was never a single auditing session that I actually wanted to receive. Mm. There was this, um, again, I say terror is too strong of a word. I just don't know. I just don't know a lighter word to use because anxious isn't strong enough of a word mm-hmm. of going into an auditing session and knowing I don't want to be doing this, but I'm not allowed to say no. I'm not allowed to object. I'm not allowed to say I don't want to do it anymore once it starts. And I'm not allowed to leave until the auditor says I'm allowed to. And it was horrible. And that was true for my entire time in Scientology. And there's no way that's not true for most children in Scientology. And I just, you know, uh, it doesn't even occur to a Scientologist that, uh, oh, my young child is essentially being groomed to never question what uh, an authoritative source tells them to do. And it's not healthy. And it's not healthy. So I would just encourage Scientology. A lot of Scientologists end up watching these Scientology videos, even though they're not supposed to. And so I would just say, think about it. Think about it because I know you haven't thought about it before. It's very damaging to children. It's very destructive. Stop forcing your kids to receive auditing. Um, and, and I don't know, some, some food for thought for, for those of you who are still in the bubble. Yeah. Linda, listen, think about it. <laughs> think about it and stop forcing your children and let them be free thinkers. I love it. Um, so I had so many people in the comments of Danny's video as well say, please tell everyone about the Aftermath Foundation, which you are a part of. Can you tell people who are in Scientology and who are trying to get out but don't have the resources how they can go about getting help? Absolutely. So we created the Aftermath Foundation after the first season of the Scientology and the Aftermath show. And um, you're probably familiar with Mike Rinder yeah. and, and maybe Mark and Claire Headley. So um, we are... Um, me and Mike and Mark and Claire are four of the seven board members. Anyway, we help people who are leaving Scientology and just need any kind of help on wherever they are on that route out of Scientology. The Aftermath Foundation is here to help them. So whether that's a, a Sea Org member who has no family, no friends, no place to go, no education, no bank account, no car, we can help anyone and everyone who, who wants to leave Scientology and, and, need, and needs that help, financial help or otherwise, to do so. And it's been an incredible success. So oh, wow. um, most, people, most people who are in the bubble find out about the fa- foundation somehow through family and friends. Um, but anyway, uh, so anyone can look up the foundation at theaftermathfoundation.org um, or we've got a Facebook page. Uh, people can support the foundation or offer to volunteer for the foundation. And that's where I would direct people. Wow. That's amazing. That's seriously amazing. What an incredible resource. Well, everyone who is watching, go follow Aaron at Growing Up in Scientology on YouTube. And is there any other platforms you want to plug? No, if they find me on YouTube, they can um, see all my socials from there. Amazing. Well, thank you again. And to our listeners, if you enjoyed this and you want to support the podcast, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash cults to consciousness. Thank you so much, Kim, my new patron. I really appreciate you. And uh, any final thoughts before we go, Aaron? 
I think that's it. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course. Well, to everyone listening, follow your highest excitement, be conscious, and listening. be well. If you like what you hear, it would mean a lot if you could like and subscribe on YouTube and leave a review or a comment to help with their visibility. You can also find me on social media at Colts2Consciousness or reach out by email at Colts2Consciousness at gmail.com.